Well, greetings from the Chapel Church. I am uh, the senior pastor at the Chapel Church, and uh, it's always sad when I'm away from my church because I love my church dearly, but I think I can say this with confidence that you're my second favorite church to preach in, so don't take that as a backhanded compliment. Uh, It just means that I dearly love my church, but they're in good hands today, and I commend them to the Lord. Uh, If you will... Will you turn to Genesis chapter 12? We are going to be in the entire chapter, Genesis chapter 12. We we live in an interesting world, and one of the interesting things about the world, at least from my vantage point, is that every day we wake up and we go to bed, and people, companies, institutions, they make promises and then try to fulfill those promises. So we're getting close to Christmas and Amazon promises one, two, or three-day delivery on your packages. Financial advisors do this. Companies do this. Even churches do this. I was driving and I saw a, a sign, a billboard from a church and it said, uh, Join us, and this is where true community is found. That's a promise. And my guess is they spend a lot of time and energy trying to fulfill that promise. We live and we sort of have our life and we swim in lots of promises that people, institutions, politicians, they proclaim, they promise, and then they try to fulfill those promises. Uh, When I was in sixth grade, I made my first and last attempt in politics. I ran for treasurer of my elementary school in sixth grade. And if you know anything about my math skills, you know instantly it was a bad idea. But I had a campaign promise. It was, I thought, foolproof. I was going to turn the elementary school into a Willy Wonka factory. And so before Obama was preaching like universal health care, I was preaching universal candy care for everyone. That was my campaign promise. And so I even incentivized a vote by like, you know, doing the cheesy thing. I like threw candy out into the audience. I had little buttons that said, a vote for Stephen is the only sweet vote. You're probably guessing I lost real bad. Landslide. And one of the reasons is about a week after, people were looking around saying, Stephen's not going to deliver on his campaign promise. And so they protested by voting for the other guy. This is the world we live in, where people make promises and then we wait in the gap between the promise and our hope that those those promises are going to be fulfilled. And that's what makes life often so difficult, waiting in the gap, because deep down we want to believe that journalists are telling us the truth. Deep down, we want to believe that companies have the consumer's best interests at heart. Deep down, we want to believe all this, and yet, the older you get, the more experiences you have, sometimes the harder and harder it gets to trust companies, institutions, people. And I think that there's a subtle and not-so-subtle downstream effect of living in this world. 
It is one of my chief concerns this morning, and it is, I think, one of the chief concerns of this text this morning. I wonder that as we live in a world of failed promises, that in some ways, subtly and not so subtly, a form of skepticism has trickled into the church such that sometimes when we look at God and the sea of promises that he has promised us, and we look out in the world and we still don't see those promises fulfilled, I wonder if we have skepticism and we are having trouble believing that God will fulfill his promises to us. God makes promises. If you're a Christian or if you haven't been to church for a while, I wonder if you're asking the question, is God going to come through on his promises? Today, I want to look at a familiar story in the book of Genesis. And it's all about living in the gap between the promises of God and the fulfillment of those promises. And really, the text is divided up into two sections. We see an extraordinary promise, verse 1 to verse 9. And then we see God's extraordinary dedication to fulfilling his own promises, verse 10 to verse 20. And I pray that as we look at these two movements, the promise given to Abram and then God's dedication to that promise, I pray that whatever skepticism we have in our hearts would slowly be eroded when we see the greatness of God's promises and his dedication to fulfilling those promises. So if you will, let's read the text. I'm going to cheat a little bit and go back into verse 27 of verse, uh, chapter 11 to give us some context. So if you will, I'm going to start reading in verse 27 of chapter 11. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name, of Abram, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth from the Ur of Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 days, or 205 years, excuse me. And Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from the country and your kindred and your father's house and the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother-in-law, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah, and the at the time of the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. 
And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. We'll stop there. So we open up the end of chapter 11 to this sort of normal family, typical family. And they are residing in the Ur of Chaldeans, which is in modern day Iraq. And that city was a modern city. It was an important city. So think of it like New York City. And right as we are introduced to this family, we're informed that this family is beginning to move, or at least a portion of this family. Now, we live in a world where we move from state to state or from nation to nation, and there are hard moves, but we do it naturally. You get a better job, and you're like, sure, I'll move to Montana or California if it pays a little bit better. We, we live in that sort of world, but back then, people didn't move. Because when you think about it, your whole livelihood was connected to the land and your family. Remember, there's no health care during Abram's day, no social security, no police. There's no LinkedIn to find help when the harvest comes. There's none of that. So your family, your kin, your tribe functions as a social safety net. And so to leave your country, your land, your community was to leave all of the privileges that you got because of your family, all the heritage, all the inheritance, all the blessings. And then Abram and his wife, his nephew Lot, some others, they leave their home and begin to travel, travel west. And they're going to Canaan. Now, Ur was a cool city. Canaan, not so much. It was like the wild, wild west in Abram's day. It was everyone, the land was just up for grabs and there's all these people and it was warring. So why in the world would Abram and his family leave the land of his birth, leave the, the land that promised him some level of prosperity and blessing? Why in the world would he leave all of that to a land that was strange, foreign, unpredictable, unsafe, why would he do that? Well, we open up chapter 12 with the answer, verse 1. God shows up, doesn't he? God shows up and says, Go from, the, from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God shows up in a pagan land to a pagan man, Abram, and tells him to leave his pagan life for a land that he does not even describe yet. Did you notice this? He just says, Go. I'll show you where. Just go, turn left, and just keep going. It's quite baffling. It's quite a gamble. And you might be looking at Abram's life because you're like, that's strange. I've never heard God make that sort of call upon my life. And I would agree that Abram is unique in redemptive history. There is one Abram, and you are not him. And yet the call of Abram is very similar to the call God makes on all humanity. You see, God called Abram to leave his old life and to follow him into a newness or into a new life. And that is the call that God makes on all of us, to leave our old life and to follow him into a new life. And 
We most certainly see this in conversion when God calls us ultimately to do that, to put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ for the first time and to follow him out of the, as Colossians says, out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. But then if you're following, if you're a Christian, that call keeps coming to us, doesn't it? The call to keep following God, even in the ambiguity of it all. And I think that really is the hard thing. Abram just gets this call, this cryptic, ambiguous, follow me and I'll tell you where this land is that I'm going to give you. And often God just says, follow me and I'm not going to tell you exactly how your life's going to turn out. I'm not going to tell you if it's going to be for richer, for poor, for better or worse. There's an ambiguity to you. And if you're one of those type A firstborn people, you're like, this is the hardest thing about following God, isn't it? And yet God still calls us to follow him. But notice, Abram wasn't just just called to follow God. There were promises attached to this following of God. Verse 2, God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So attached to this calling is this promise that God is going to bless Abram. And really, you can think of this blessing in three categories. God says he's going to give land, offspring, and universal blessing. Three promises. Land, children or offspring, and then universal blessing. And you're like, why these three? Always a good kind of interpretation question. Why these three blessings? Well, if you're reading the entire book of Genesis, if you go back to the first two chapters of Genesis, God blesses the first humans, Adam and Eve, and he blesses them with a land, Eden. And then he promises to be fruitful and multiply. He promises them that they're going to have offspring. And then he says, and these, you are going to be a blessing to the universe. So if you think about it, the blessing here that we see in Genesis 12 is a similar blessing that God has already given Adam and Eve. But then you get to chapter three and Adam and Eve take things in their own hands. They sin. And then we have a working out of the curse of God because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And we see this curse fall on a land. They're kicked out of Eden. We see this curse fall on their offspring. Think of the first son that they have, Cain, who then murders Abel. And then you just wonder, what is this universal blessing? How how is this going to go forward? Is there any hope for humanity? You wonder that when you get to chapter three. And then you just keep reading and you have this kind of working out of the curse of sin, even in Noah's day or in the Tower of Babel. You just get this working out of God's judgment on sin. And then you get to chapter 12 and you see this threefold blessing And God is basically saying, I'm going to restart my redemptive purposes with this new couple. Abram and Sarai are a new Adam and Eve in which God is going to use to form a new people of God that are going to be a blessing to the world. But there is a problem, and I skipped it. I didn't reference it, but there is a big problem from the vantage point of Abram and Sarai. God says, I'm going to bless you, land, offspring, universal blessing. 
But chapter 11 signals a big problem. One word, verse 30. Sarai was barren. She had no children because she could have no children. So God calls Abram to leave nearly everything and migrate to a sort of a cryptic land and promises Abraham that he's going to have a child better, that that his children are going to come after children and children and children. He's going to have a multitude of generations that are going to be a blessing to the world. But the reality is, from his vantage point, from his community's vantage point, maybe even from our vantage point, God's got the wrong guy. God's got the wrong family. Whenever God's word comes to us, we all high moments in your life always comes a temptation or a trial. And so we sort of move from faith to famine, from trust to temptation, from Eden to Egypt. The second movement. So not only do we see God's extraordinary promise to Abram, we now see God's extraordinary dedication to fulfill his promise. Go to verse 10. Now there was famine in the land, So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you? You say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men order concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all the land. Chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and all his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev to Bethel to the place where he he had a tent before he belonged between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Verse 10 is sort of the hinge in this chapter. There was famine in the land. Famine puts the promises of God in jeopardy, do they not? Starvation equals death. Death equals no children. No children equals no fulfillment of this promise. And so Abram's kind of surveys the situation. He sees that there's famine in the land and he takes things into his own hands. He decides that he's going to go down to Egypt, which makes perfect logical sense. Egypt has the Nile. 
It's sort of famine-proof. And so he goes, we're going down south. We're going to go to Egypt. He didn't pray to God. You see him slowly drift from God. All because of this famine. Now the trial of Abram was a physical famine. But the trials in our life come in all forms, don't they? And all these trials, they put our faith to the test. They come in the form of a cold bed, a bill you don't know how to pay, a wayward child, a diagnosis, a friendship who you thought was loyal but all of a sudden stabbed you in the back. These trials come in all sorts of forms. In Abram's life, it was a physical form. And he was beginning to say, well, I better take things into my own hands, matters into my own hands. I better go down to Egypt. And so he does. But when he arrives, he realizes he has a problem. His wife is too pretty. And he's like, well, I'm pretty sure they're going to kill me and take my wife. So he kind of comes up with this great plan. Now, if you keep reading, if you know anything about Genesis, Abram doesn't learn his lesson. He does this a second time. Now, if I did this one time to my wife, I don't even want to know what my wife would do to me. Abram does it twice. But here's the first occasion of Abram doing this. He says, look, you're just going to say that you're my sister. And really, if you keep reading too, you find out that Sarai is technically the half uh, is, is related to him. So he's, she's technically the sister. So it's like a half-truth. It's like a gray area. And so this is their plan. All right, Sarah, don't say that we're married. And so he does it. Unfortunately for him, she is taken into Pharaoh's court. It goes sideways real fast, doesn't it? Isn't this the case so often in our lives when we take things into our own hands, when we try to outthink the promises of God? So often they go sideways so quickly. Abram isn't killed. That plan works. And Abram, he gets rich in the process. I mean, I don't know anything. I'm like a city boy. There's all these like farm animals. But evidently that's like, the Bentley of its day. Abram gets rich in all of this. But every time he sees his, his Bentley and his new Ferrari and his she-camel and stuff, he's just reminded of the fact that he has lost his wife and therefore the promises of God. Life is out of control. He's like, I don't have any way out of it in all of this. I'm just a foreigner in Egypt. I've lost my wife. I've got some treasures. I've got some wealth. But what good does that do me? That's Abram. But luckily for him, he learns a lesson in Egypt. And then when he gets out of Egypt, it really is the lesson of this text. That the promises of God are contingent on the character of God, not the character of of Abram. God shows up, doesn't he? And he afflicts Pharaoh and his whole house with a plague. Not a, no idea what that plague is. 
but it wasn't good. And in response, Pharaoh chastises Abram, doesn't he? Says, what have you done to me? You lied to me. I wouldn't have done this. And basically says, here's your wife. Take all the gifts that I've given you and get the heck out of Dodge. Get out of here. I don't want, I don't want to see you in Egypt anymore. And so they leave. They, they, they leave Egypt. And it really is an extraordinary mercy. Because there's this, there's this turn. All throughout this section, it's, it's mirrored or it's, it's an echo of the story of Adam and Eve. And so when you, when you just think about it, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they sin. They take things in their own hands. God's word of promise comes to Adam and Eve and they're like, meh, we'll take things in their own hands. And they are then kicked out of the land. Well, Abram and Sarah do similarly. They take things and take matters into their own hands and they're kicked out of the land and we assumed that they're going to be cursed as a result of it, but in many ways, they're just blessed. I mean, they end, you end at the beginning of chapter 13 with them back in the land of promise, back in Canaan, back in the place where they're worshiping. He's calling upon the name of the land. It's like Egypt never happened. It just was like a momentary pit stop. The promises of God hinged on the character of God, not on the character of Abram. Now, obviously the lesson is not that you can just live however you want. Your character doesn't matter because at the end of the day, God's just going to use you or do whatever he wants to do. That's not the lesson here. My guess is Abram and Sarai are still in marriage counseling because of this. There are consequences to our choices. This is not a license to just live however you want. And yet the spotlight of this text is that though it might not look like it, Though it might not, you might not be able to figure out everything. Though you're, you might feel one way, God always comes through on his promises. As we read earlier, his character is actually on the line. One way or another. One way or another. God will fulfill his promise. Which is so unlike us. And it's so unlike our world. About a decade ago, I remember, I was watching a football game. It was a playoff game. The Seahawks were playing, and they are playing the Green Bay Packers. Some of you, this is going to give you PTSD, and I apologize. And uh, the Seahawks won the coin flip, and Matt Hasselbeck looks the, like the camera right in the face and is like, we want the ball, and we're going to score. There's the promise. Oh, I love the confidence. Right after the kickoff, first play. Matt Hasselbeck throws the ball into the flat. Green Bay Packers pick it off, run it back, touchdown, game over. That sums up our world. Promises. But making a promise is one thing. Talk is cheap. That might be our world, but it's not God's world. Genesis 12 is proof that God fulfills his promise. I mean, just, just think about who this book is written to. This book is written by Moses to the people of God on the verge of going into the promised land. So just think about everything that they've experienced. Their character suspect. The, the idolatry you saw in, in Exodus. 
Think of all the ways in which they failed to believe God. And so they're sitting about to go into the promised land. They have this book and they're wondering, is our lack of character, is our idolatry, is the our failure of our, us and our sin, is that going to void the promise of God to get into the land? They're wondering it. And then they read of Genesis 12. And they read what happened to Abram. And they come to a wonderful conclusion. I think we think this as well. I mean, we, we, we look at the church broadly. And one thing that social media brings to us is that social media loves to point out when the church fails. And so they love broadcasting another pastor and his moral failure, another church that, you know, embezzled money. Or, I mean, we could just make a list. And you, you look at the church broadly in America and you're like, there are warts. You look and you're like, some have caved to the, the whims of society. Some are theologically drifting or have drifted decades ago. You look at the broader church and you're like, there's a lot of problems. And then you look at our church. You look at my church. I mean, most recently, I remember a, a young woman came up to me and she told me a story about what it was like growing up as a high school student in our church. And she explained some failures of the church in discipling her. And they were legitimate. We had failed her. And it made me wonder, in light of our church, not intentionally, but accidentally failing to love her or failing God's word in her life, you just look at the broader culture and think, uh, is God still going to build his church? I mean, the promise that Jesus gives that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overtake her. You look out and you're like, is that still true when our churches aren't perfect? And then, like God's people in Genesis 12, we read Genesis 12 and we remind ourselves the best news that God will build his church. That the promises of God are not contingent upon our character, but God's own character. The New Testament sums it up this way in Romans chapter 11, verse 29. We read, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. I can't spell it, but I'm pretty sure that means that they are unchangeable. They will come to pass. God, he promises. Whatever the promises are, whether they're small or big, whether you memorize them or you have forgotten them, God's promises will come. They will come to pass. If God did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us, how much more will he give us all things? All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. It really is the hope of the gospel. I mean, the gospel saves us. And if you're not a Christian, that is in one sense, the greatest news that we want you to hear this morning, which is to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation. The gospel is our only hope in life and death, as we just sang. The gospel saves us, but the gospel isn't merely that. The gospel is also proof that God's future promises will come true. If God would send his own son to die for us, that is the foundational proof historically that all of the promises of God are going to come true. 
So brothers and sisters, I know that looks can be deceiving. But Genesis 12, it's written to encourage us. It's written to instill within us a deeper realization that God's promises, they're going to come true. Because you can't forfeit what God promised to fulfill. You can't sell what God has already purchased. You can't even tear down what God has promised to build up. God's word of promise, every one of them, from the smallest to the greatest, will come true. And it's our job, and it's my job, as we sort of live in this gap between what God has said that he would do and what he has not yet done. It's our job to strengthen our collective resolve to remember through worship and other means that God will fulfill his promise. That all of his promises rest ultimately on God and his character. We have a great God. And like Abram, our response is to make his name great. So let's do that as we continue to worship him. Lord, we There are many things in our lives and our hearts which we feel would, a, would be a means or a reason why you would not use us in this world. Lord, why you would choose the church as the means in which you would advance your kingdom, we will never know. And yet we are thankful for your grace in our lives that having purchased us, you want to provide for us and having provided for us, you want to use us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would continue to encourage us that whatever's going on in our lives, whether, whether it's pain, trials, or if this is a wonderful season in, in our lives, Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would strengthen our resolve to remember who you are, your character and your goodness, and how you will fulfill all of our promises, all of your promises to us in life and in death. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.